The Big Wake Up by Mark Coggins is what you hope every private eye novel will be, says Edgar Award-winning author Megan Abbott. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 13, Madison, and I'm Not Talking Dolly. It's not every day that someone finds a hidden compartment in your car, so I felt obligated to go see what Caesar was talking about. I hoped he hadn't stumbled across the gym bag I'd mislaid five years ago, because I had no desire to see or smell the inside of that again. But more to the point, If I was going to locate Maximo and get a handle on what he and Rivera were up to, I wasn't going to do it by sitting around the atrium of the Palace Hotel, eating finger sandwiches. I made Melina swear on a stack of Gideon Bibles that she would stay put in her hotel room and keep her cell phone close by. I also made her promise to phone immediately if Rivera contacted her. On the short drive to Caesars, I used my own phone to enlist the help of some of the operatives in the Reardon investigative network. Like the head man himself, my ops don't exactly earn a regular salary. One works for bribes, and the other for free. The bribe-taking one is a 58-year-old woman named Fawn, who clerks in the DMV. She gave me Maximo's home address and full name for 150, or the promise of 150. He lived on Valley Street in the Noe Valley neighborhood of San Francisco, and contrary to my prediction, had a last name of Vilas. The op who works gratis is Chris. He's something of a wannabe PI, and is always suggesting schemes or high-tech gadgets that could be of use to me in my job. Most of his suggestions have been expensive, impractical, or both, and all of them conveniently required his personal involvement. This time, I decided one of them might actually pan out. It was a GPS-enabled tracking device for cars that relayed its location in real time via the internet. When I got Chris on the phone and told him what I wanted, the yelp of glee that came through the receiver just about deafened me. With that kind of noise, I said, I hope you're at home or standing in the middle of an open field. Nope, he said. I'm in the Starbucks on Castro, making goo-goo eyes at the cute barista and checking for jobs on Craigslist. Chris worked in the software field, but had trouble holding down a job for longer than six months due to his smart-ass ways. He'd been fired from his last company when he came to work in drag and pretended to be the temp agency substitute for his boss's vacationing admin. He probably would have gotten away with it if his boss hadn't asked him out for drinks. Maybe Starbucks is hiring, I said. You could help your barista friend brew the coffee. Or steam the milk. I'm not sure I know what that means, but I'm pretty sure I don't like where this is going. Just let me know where and when to pick you up. Escape from New York Pizza on Castro in 30 minutes. Pizza? Why am I meeting you at a pizza joint? Trust me, their Andy Warhol pie is excellent. He hung up before I could protest further. When I got to the garage, I found Caesar waiting for me in the little office above his main floor. He was sitting behind a dented metal desk with a messy collage of carburetor parts, 
oily rags, and sockets from a ratchet set scattered across the top. In contrast to his surroundings, he was as well put together as ever, but the expression on his face was unsettled. This thing worries me, senor, he said. Worries you? If it came out of my car, what's the worst it could be? A bomb with your name on it. I came forward to the desk, picked up one of the sockets, and held it up to the light. It was a big boy, a 1.25 inch. I looked at him through the hole in the middle. Now I know you're kidding, and I didn't take you for the practical joking sort. Caesar yanked open a drawer in the desk and took out a metal box. He cleared a space for it on the desktop and plopped it down. You can see I'm not kidding about your name, at least. The box was about two feet long and a foot wide, but was only six inches deep. There was a hasp on the lid padlocked with a small lock like you use on luggage. Augustus was written on the top in what was probably ink from a magic marker. Where did you find this again? It was in the trunk, in a special made compartment under the carpet there. It was made to lie flush with the floor of the trunk, so you wouldn't have seen it unless you pulled the carpet up. Yeah, I'm not much on peeping under carpet. I put the socket down and picked up the box with both hands. It had heft, but it wasn't filled with solid lead. I set it down again. Nobody calls me Augustus. Occasionally I get a Gus or an Augie, and I set those people straight right away. But I never get an Augustus. How about your father? You said the car came from him. We didn't talk. Not really. But it is the name on my birth certificate. He might not have known any better. And he never mentioned that the car included extra accessories? There was a note that came with the car, but I tore it up. Caesar stood and walked through the door of the office to a tool chest just outside. He rummaged through one of the lower drawers and extracted a pair of heavy-duty wire cutters. He came back and handed the cutters to me. These should snip right through the lock. I took the cutters from his hand. He dipped his head in a sort of half-nod and retreated from the room again to stand just to the side of the door. I'm just going to give you a little privacy, senor, he said from behind the brick wall. Who knows what sort of cherished objects a father might leave a son. I laughed. Did you mean to say exploding instead of cherished? Families can be difficult. It is curious to hear that you tore up his note. Have it your way. I put the maw of the wire cutters around the shackle of the lock and squeezed. They sliced through the thin shackle like it was made of cooked pasta. I threaded the lock through the hasp, flipped open the latch, and lifted the lid. Inside was a Zippo lighter with an ace of spades engraved on the front, a yellowed envelope, and two handguns in clear plastic bags with the metal parts smeared in a heavy grease. I looked back at the office door and found Caesar peeking around the edge of the frame. Ollie ollie oxen free, I said. No bombs. Caesar stepped back into the room, grinning slightly. I never had a doubt. What did you find? We've got a lighter, and rather than weapons of mass destruction, weapons of limited destruction. I picked up both of the bags by a corner and held them up. This appears to be a 9mm Luger, and this is a Colt Supermatch, a thirty-eight caliber by the looks of it. Perhaps your father was a collector. What about the envelope? 
The envelope had flopped out onto the desk when I picked up the guns. I set them down again to retrieve it. At first it seemed empty, but when I held it up I could see a single bill of undetermined denomination was inside. I tore off the narrow end of the envelope and shook it out. A crisp, bright, $5,000 bill fluttered down to the desk, the unfamiliar portrait of James Madison on the front of it staring back at us. Next to Madison's name was inscribed, Series of 1952. Collecting money is better than collecting guns. Especially when you stick to the big bills. I don't think they even make these anymore. Caesar picked it up. They don't make Galaxy 500s anymore either. I have to admit I was wrong, senor. It turns out you were right to keep the car. I hadn't bothered to explain it to Caesar, but it was clear to me that my father had left me the guns from his own PI business. The lighter must have been his as well. The $5,000 bill I couldn't make heads or tails of, except that it was an efficient way to secret a chunk of dough. For lack of any better idea, I put the bill in my wallet. The lighter I outfitted with a new flint and flew it at the drugstore. The guns I dropped off at a Mission District gunsmith for cleaning before I went to meet Chris. And I resolved not to think any more about the idea of my father willing me these things until later. Chris was standing on the sidewalk outside the pizza place when I got there. Beside him was a balding guy with a long, stringy rat tail hanging over his collar that looked like it had been rubbed in Crisco. He had an equally greasy leather band around his neck with a pagan silver cross attached to it and eyeglasses with thick lenses from the German school of industrial design. He did not, in short, look anything like the kind of guy I would expect Chris to hang out with. This is Zigar, said Chris when I came up to them. Zig to my friends, said the greasy one. Zig is the manager here at Escape from New York. I put my hands in my pockets and rattled my father's lighter and my St. Apollonia medal. That's great, Chris, but how is Zig going to help us with the matter we discussed earlier? Patience, said Chris. Put yourself in Zig's shoes. Okay. You've got ten hourly workers delivering pizza all over San Francisco, none of whom are particularly reliable and all of whom occasionally get lost. And you've got your commitment to your customers to get their pizza delivered to them, piping hot in a certain amount of time after they order. Thirty minutes, put in Zig. Right, thirty minutes. Chris walked over to a beater Toyota that was parked in front of the restaurant. There was a dome light with the Escape from New York logo on top of the roof. And this is the sort of reliable, employee-owned vehicle your drivers are using. To meet your commitment to your customers and keep a better handle on things overall, what would you do? I think I get it, I said. Put a GPS tracker in their cars? Exactimo, said Zig. And you'd monitor them from a computer in the office, pestering them by cell phone if they take too long or even look like they are going in the wrong direction. He opened the door of the Toyota and took a plastic item about the size of a deck of cards from the dash. I can loan you this one right here. I took it from his hand. I'm not going to be able to drop it on the dashboard of the car I want to track. You've got a good way to stick it under a bumper or a wheel well or something? Sure do, said Zig. The bottom of the device has two magnetic strips to attach it to a car for clandestine tracking. It works great in a wheel well. I know. I've used it to track my girlfriend. 
Zig must have seen something in my face because he added, But not to see if she's cheating. We do some elaborate role-playing games. You know, to spice things up. Yes, of course, I said. Chris here is the real role-playing expert, though. What about monitoring? Do we have to be in your office to track a car? No. I've given Chris the software to install on his laptop. As long as you can get connected to the internet, you'll be able to track the device anywhere in the U.S. I looked over at Chris. He hoisted a messenger bag that was dangling from his shoulder. Laptop with wireless modem for connecting to the internet. We can even track the subject from a moving car. The subject, huh? Okay, what else do we need? That's it, said Zig, and held out his hand. Good luck, man. I've got to get back to the restaurant. I shook his hand, and he turned to head back. I watched the rat tail bounce up and down on the Escape from New York logo on the back of his t-shirt as he walked, and I had a sudden flash of inspiration. Wait, I said. Just one more thing. He twisted around. Sure, what can I do for you, man? How much to buy one of those delivery car dome lights? You have been listening to The Big Wake Up, a book Publishers Weekly described as outstanding in a starred review. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Hoggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.